They thought they were free. That is a provocative title, which inspired me to read the book which Susan shared passages from in the reading. In the mid-1950s, the author moves to a small village, befriends and interviews 10 fairly ordinary German people, all men in this case, who not only acclimated themselves to Nazi rule, but who participated to different degrees in the party on a very small community basis and who often supported what they understood as Nazi causes and principles even after the war had ended. And the question in my mind when I heard about this book and as I began reading was, Maybe the question that you have this moment as I tell of it, the question had me basically repeating the title of the book, but in an astonished, flabbergasted way. They thought they were free? How could they possibly think they were free under Nazi totalitarian rule? And the question eventually arrived home as questions often do, what makes me think I am free? How do I know it, experience it, feel it? What is freedom? All too often, freedom, and I would hazard to say that this is especially true from my societal peer group, white, male, heterosexual, cisgender, those who have not experienced actual bondage, oppression, discrimination. For us, freedom can take shape as simply doing what I want to do. Just leave me alone and let me live my life the way I want to live it. If I have a certain standard of living that sustains me daily and allows me to afford some pleasant diversions and entertaining activities, and I don't run up against arbitrary, to me, restrictions on my activities, voila, I am free. And if I think of it that way, paired with the peace in the reading, about Nazism restoring and expanding social services, increasing employment, bolstering the economy for many everyday German citizens like these 10 men, if I think of it that way, I begin to at least get an inkling of an answer to my question. I begin to understand, however disturbing this realization may be, I begin to understand how these people may have thought they were free. As they had greater ability to live their own lives, to find and maintain employment, to even feel a sense of belonging and respect in their community that they hadn't had before. And nobody in their community, nobody they knew, as people generally know people of their own neighborhood and of their own station and occupation, of their own political or non-political views, of their own religion and race. Nobody that they knew went hungry, nobody went ill, 
or uncared for. All the blessings of this new order advertised everywhere reached everybody. And all they had to do to hold on to this freedom, all that the 70 million Germans, apart from the million or so who operated the whole machinery of Nazism had to do, all they had to do was not interfere. To look away from any suspected discrimination, arrest, detention, atrocity, to believe or pretend to believe the cover stories that they were told, to disbelieve and discredit the truth about the atrocities as enemy propaganda. All they had to do was not interfere. It's easy enough to do. Tragically easy. And when I do look at it this way, I have to climb down off my high self-righteous horse and wonder what I might have done. I need to question my unexamined sense of what freedom actually means. I am called to explore the many and varied experiences of freedom. I am called to try and articulate for myself the difference between individual freedom as I have understood it, and collective liberation, as I am coming to understand it. From the outside and from the perspective of history, we can call these men deluded, if not obscenely immoral. How can they imagine they were free or talk nostalgically of those years under Nazi rule when we all know what happened? How could they not know? How could they carry on as if nothing had changed? A colleague of the author, a philologist, describes how the changes were introduced from the first and smallest to the last and most horrendous. He said, in between come all the hundreds of little steps, some of them imperceptible, each of them preparing you not to be shocked by the next step. Step C is not so much worse than step B, and if you did not make a stand at step B, why should you at step C and on to step D? And one day, too late, your principles, if you were ever sensible of them, all rush in upon you. The burden of self-deception has grown too heavy. And some minor incident, in this case, his child, almost still a baby, said, Jew swine. Some minor incident collapses it all at once, and you see that everything, everything has changed and changed completely under your nose. Suddenly, it all comes down all at once. You see what you are, what you have done, or more accurately, what you haven't done. For that was all that was required of most of us, that we do nothing. You may have heard the quote from Martin Niemöller, the Lutheran pastor who at first was sympathetic to the Nazi cause and later became an outspoken critic. 
he wrote, first they came for the socialists. And I did not speak out because I was not a socialist. Then they came for the trade unionists and I did not speak out because I was not a trade unionist. Then they came for the Jews and I did not speak out because I was not a Jew. Then they came for me and there was no one left to speak for me. And the interviews with these men included in the book show the tragedy that occurs even if they never come for me. For even so, even if I have escaped what others have suffered to secure my own freedom, still I must live with what I have done and most importantly, have not done. The pursuit of individual freedom alone can lead to such compromises. I can hang on to mine and at such a small cost. All I have to do is look away from the many who are not allowed this freedom. All I have to do is not interfere. All I have to do is turn away from Gaza. All I have to do is turn my head from the many unhoused people struggling to survive. All I have to do is not interfere with the funneling of money to the richest while social programs are savagely cut. All I really have to do is be satisfied and not concern myself with the well-being of others, not meddle. That's all. They thought they were free. Liberation, collective freedom calls me to a different place and is costly in a very different way as described by Desmond Tutu. It needs unity. We must hold hands and refuse to be divided. We must be ready. Liberation demands that I not look away. It is not satisfied with my own comfort. It does not divide the world into people like me and the others. It is not freedom from my connection to others, but freedom to engage with others, to join with others. Pursuing this sort of freedom is messy. It is challenging to figure out. It is never quite finished, which is why I love the story and the pictures of those incredible freedom machines. One must keep tinkering and trying and not give up. This sort of freedom is inextricably tied to love in the spirit of our theme this month and in the words of bell hooks that you heard in the call to worship. The moment we choose to love, we begin to move against domination, against oppression. We begin to move towards freedom, to act in ways that liberate ourselves and others. That action is the testimony of love as the practice of freedom. Love is the choice to let some of my personal freedom go so that I may act in ways that help to liberate others. Love can feel like the opposite of freedom, right? As it holds me accountable to the reality of my interdependence with all of life. Martin Luther King Jr. described it beautifully in a way that challenges my concept of individual freedom. 
writing, we are caught in an inescapable network of mutuality, tied in a single garment of destiny. Caught and tied. Does that sound like freedom? But it is. When we learn to embrace these connections and to respond to this reality with love, we open up a freedom we could not have predicted, a freedom that is truly inclusive. Love, writes Bell Hooks, is the practice of freedom. With all that lies in this country's past, with all that is going on presently, and with all that looms ahead, if we are to talk of freedom, we need more than that flimsy and dangerous notion of personal freedom, that freedom from concern for others. We have many examples of where that leads, not least of all the people described in this book. They thought they were free. The man I quoted earlier shares a perspective from after the fall of the Nazi regime. He said, you remember those early meetings of your department in the university when if one had stood, others would have stood perhaps, but no one stood. A small matter, a matter of hiring this man or that, and you hired this one rather than that. You remember everything now and your heart breaks too late. You are compromised beyond repair. My heart breaks just reading that. But another way beckons. It is costly and it needs unity. We must hold hands and refuse to be divided. What spoke to me in the words from Bell Hooks in our call to worship beyond the talk of freedom and love was the phrase, the moment. Things can change in a moment. The moment we choose to love, we begin to move against domination, against oppression. The moment we choose to love, we begin to move towards freedom, to act in ways that liberate ourselves and others in a moment. And all our lives, we were only waiting for this moment to arise. We were only waiting for this moment to be free. We were only waiting for this moment to arise.